This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European operations and customer service office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, perspectives on foreign affairs from the Irish Times network of correspondents around the world. I'm Patrick Smith. In the last few weeks, the debate about the UK's renegotiation of its relationship with the EU and the possibility of what's called Brexit has taken on a new tone and urgency. Yes and no campaigns have been established in Britain. David Cameron has begun a tour of capitals and reluctantly he's agreed to spell out in more detail his demands, though not all publicly. Ireland can expect visits from senior British and EU diplomats in the next 10 days to discuss the issue, while our own DFA has begun to think about how it can influence the debate. And just back from a few days in Warsaw to his usual haunts in Berlin, Derek Scali looks at the Polish election and the return of Conservative, Catholic, Law and Justice Party to power after trouncing Civic Platform, a centrist party which has ruled since 2007. Law and Justice, led by a former Prime Minister Jaroslaw Kaczynski, whose twin brother died in an airline crash in 2010, just has a bare parliamentary majority with 37% of the vote. A shock for the Poles and its EU partners. But first to Brexit, we're joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, and Paul Gillespie, editor of a recent study of the implications for Ireland of the Brexit debate. Now, there's much talk of negotiations reaching a conclusion uh, and a decision by December and the summit, but that's hardly serious or realistic, Dennis. It's unlikely to to be absolutely finished by December. There is a summit on the 17th of December where uh, the EU leaders are to discuss David Cameron's demands. As you mentioned, he's going to write a letter to the head of the European Council, Donald Tusk, in early November. And that letter will be published. And that's supposed to sketch out uh, Britain's demands. Although uh, I'm told from the uh, British government that it's unlikely to be uh, an extremely detailed opening negotiating position. But we do know more or less what he's looking for, or at least the areas that he's looking for some agreement on. He's hoping that, uh, first of all, that, uh, th- that they can improve the EU's competitiveness, and that's things like uh, extending the, uh, the single market into digital services, uh, agreeing some trade deals with the United States, with Japan, with various others. A lot of that is part of the uh, agenda of the Juncker Commission already, so it may not be the most difficult thing to sort out. Then he's also looking for greater power for national parliaments. You already have some extra powers for national parliaments that were agreed to the, uh, by the, uh, in the Lisbon Treaty, which means that national parliaments can kind of send up a signal saying that they're concerned that uh, some EU uh, legislation is going too far, some EU proposals are going too far. He wants to strengthen that. Again, he might find some support for that elsewhere. And then he's also looking for some change to this uh, position the European Union at, in its treaty says that it is seeking what they call an ever closer union. So this sort of inexorable uh, integration, further, further, further integration all the time. And what a lot of critics 
uh, of the European Union and Britain complain about is that that has a kind of a, a ratcheting up effect so that it can, uh, you can have more integration, but you can never have less. It can only go in one direction. He wants some kind of a change on that. Related to that, he is looking for a, a new dispensation on the relationship between the countries in the European Union that are part of the euro and the countries that are outside the euro. This, is, this could be a very important change if indeed he gets it, because what he's saying is that the problem now is that the eurozone countries will be able to outvote those outside the European, the Euro, the Euro currency, at, at any time that they choose on matters that are really very important. And the reason that this became so acute here was because at the height of the negotiations about what to do about the Greek crisis earlier this year, in the middle of the night or kind of late one evening, the Europeans decided to call on uh, this joint fund uh, the, uh, to, to help to bail out the uh, the, uh, the Greeks. And this was a fund that the non Euro countries had to pay into, but they weren't consulted about this. They were just told you're going to have to pay in. And so, uh, so what, what uh, David Cameron is looking for is some new dispensation on that. And then the one that's most, most crucial, probably politically in Britain, is about migration. And uh, what David Cameron is looking for there is not a limit to the numbers of migrants that can come to Britain from other EU countries, but what he's looking for is new rules on how they can claim benefits. Now, for some uh, of these benefits, like unemployment benefit, there may not be that much of a problem getting an agreement. The thing that could be very difficult, though, is that Britain has this elaborate system of benefits for people who are in work but are getting paid rather uh, rather poorly. And those pays, that pay is topped up by the government in terms of welfare payments. And what uh, David Cameron would like to do would be to limit those payments to people who have already lived in the United Kingdom for a certain number of years. That could be a really big problem for him. Well, we've known a lot of, of these broad in broad outline for some time, and uh, presumably the setting down or in more specific detail is is going to help uh, focus uh, the, the the discussions. But it's also a hostage to fortune, as far as he's concerned, in relation to his backbenchers. That's a problem. He's actually got two things to worry about, in a way, if he spells things out too, in too great a detail in advance. First of all, it's an opening bid. That, uh, he's kind of showing his hand to the other European uh, leaders in terms of the negotiation, and that could uh, you know, be interpreted by them as being an opening bid that he can be uh, persuaded down from. But also, on the other hand, he has, as you say, got to worry about his own backbenchers. The Conservative Party is split down the middle on uh, the European Union and on membership of the European Union. And if his uh, opening demands are perceived to be too modest, then he could find that uh, he's under pressure to change them and to strengthen them before he even gets into the serious negotiations. So that's why I think they're likely to be uh, fairly coy in advance of the summit in December. And then what they would hope to do would be to be able to get some kind of progress in December, but probably not a complete deal at that stage. And then to, at some stage, uh, probably in the spring of next year or maybe even in the summer, to come back and to uh, declare to the British people that he has uh, fundamentally transformed Britain's relationship with the European Union and that uh, he can consequently recommend what in fact, everybody thinks he was always going to recommend in the first place, which is that Britain votes to stay in the European Union. 
Now, he's also insisted in the last few days that there will be no second vote, that, that people are only going to have one crack at it. It's sort of um, perhaps uh, harking back to, to the Scottish uh, vote, where as soon as the vote was over, people were demanding another one. Uh, but there's also a sense perhaps that his, his position... Um, is hardening in terms of supporting uh, a um, Britain staying in the European Union. Are, are you are you getting that feeling? Yes, certainly. If you listen to the rhetoric coming from David Cameron and indeed from uh, many of his ministers, I was talking last week to the Europe minister, David Lidington, and one of the things that struck me about what he was saying was that when he was talking about what happens uh, at the end, this idea of a second uh, European referendum, uh, you know, in other words, what some of the no campaigners have been trying to suggest is that if Britain votes to get out of the European Union, that maybe they might have to have a second uh, referendum on whatever the terms of Britain's renegotiated relationship with the uh, European Union would be. In other words, as a non-member of the European Union, what its relationship would be. And the reason that some of these no campaigners are saying that is they want to reassure uh, people, uh, voters, that actually they mightn't be taking such an enormous, such a dangerous step in voting no. Now, what uh, David Cameron's ministers are now saying is, look, there will be no second vote. He said that himself. And also they're saying that actually if Britain votes to leave, that what Article 50 of the Treaty of the European Union says is that actually the rest of the European Union member states go into another room and they, between them, work out the terms that they will negotiate on for Britain's relationship uh, with the European Union as a non-member state. And so they seem to be uh, talking up all of this talk of the dangers of leaving. Uh, David Cameron has also been talking about how uh, the idea of a Norwegian option, of, the, of having a relationship with the European Union like Norway has, which is very close, but is not a member state, that that wouldn't be acceptable, that that actually would be the worst of both worlds because they would just have to accept whatever the EU rules uh, the other EU member states agree on without actually having any place at the table. So, so certainly uh, the, it would appear from all of the things that he's saying that it would be very difficult for him now to start uh, walking back from uh, from a commitment to uh, to looking for a yes vote. And certainly all of the body language, as it were, is suggesting that he is looking for uh, for a deal that he can then sell to... Um, uh, to the people uh, back in back in Britain. Part of the difficulty, though, of saying there will be no second referendum is that he can say we won't call a second referendum. But as you've seen in Scotland, where the uh, the Scottish independence referendum was uh, defeated by a margin of about ten percent, immediately after the vote, there has already been talk of a second referendum. And what we don't know is that politically what would happen if the vote here was pretty close and that, uh, you know, would in fact the Eurosceptics then say, OK, that's it for a generation, or would they seek to have one more heave and go for it again? The, I'll come back to the issue of, of negotiating terms for, for Brexit, but Paul Gillespie, in Dublin last week there were, there were three meetings to debate uh, the and to discuss the prospects of, of uh, Brexit. Um, how are Ireland, uh, the government, business, others in civil society viewing Brexit and the, the, um, uh, and the British demands? It, it's regarded very seriously. Uh, it, it's a major issue. Uh, I think there's, there's some kind of relief that the issue is now 
getting its proper airing and debate in the UK political system uh, and particularly if, if indeed there is a hardening uh, of resolve by the British government as Dennis was saying uh, to, towards the staying in and a hardening up of that kind of argumentation there'll be a relief uh, on that. It, I mean the fundamental position of let us say official Ireland and nearly everybody who's concerned with this is that it's very much in Ireland's long term interest that Britain would stay in uh, for Britain to exit would fundamentally disrupt the British-Irish relationship which has uh, developed uh, and become much more um, cordial uh, within the EU system. Uh, where, where, where Britain to exit, uh, there'd be fundamental issues in the north of Ireland, uh, there'd be fundamental issues about regulatory uh, uh, relations between the two states, uh, and of course uh, Ireland would have to adopt a pretty firm position in terms of its own interests uh, and the protection of those uh, as, as Britain uh, exited. Now, there's a different set of interests involved in, in Ireland uh, um, encouraging Britain to stay in. And in those four areas that, that uh, um, Dennis has mentioned, sovereign, you might summarise them as sovereignty, competitiveness, fairness and welfare. There's a good lot of overlap uh, between Irish positions uh, and, and British positions. Uh, uh, Saying that, one must be careful about overgeneralizing from the Irish point of view. Certain parties, certain interests in Ireland would have a, a greater uh, uh, commitment to Britain staying in than others, for example. For example, the trade unions. Uh, were there to be a lot of um, concessions to Britain on social regulation, uh, the uh, British trade unions are saying this would be an incentive for their members to vote no, and, of course, in the Irish case, uh, there, there would be a debate in the trade union movement as to whether too much has been given away. And all around the system, you're going to have, uh, all around the EU system, you're going to have such debates developing as, as different states line up uh, towards, the British, uh, towards the British position. Okay, but I would just, just uh, take up that point particularly. Yeah. I mean, one of the things the British appear to be doing is pitching their demands for reform as collective demands for the whole of the European Union, for all members. Yes. And so any change, for example, to social uh, legislation would be changes not only in Britain, but, but in Ireland. Indeed, indeed. I, I mean, again, I'd say, let's say, official Ireland uh, would be very much in favour of a British position that did look at this issue, at these issues collectively, because that uh, helps to, it, it makes it easier to do, do the negotiation. Uh, but it becomes tricky, of course, as to where you concede uh, on these issues. And uh, this becomes political, obviously, in, in, you know, we're getting elections rolling through the system all the time. And this becomes contentious uh, in a, in a electoral sense. So it's a very, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky and sensitive set of issues. And uh, I, I would say that Ireland, along with most other member states, are not disposed to go a very long way uh, to uh, fundamentally rewrite uh, the existing legislation and, and policy positions in order to keep Britain in. And one of the big issues which Dennis was talking about is this question of the relationship between the Euro states and the, and the non-Euro states. The implications there are, are fairly profound for the way in which the European Union takes decisions and, and moving back towards what might be called intergovernmentalism. Is, is, is there a, an understanding of the British position in, in, in Dublin on this? Oh, I, I think so, because, I, I mean, you could say it's the rational core of the British argument is that uh, if you're going to have a system 
where you have states fully members, members of the single market, even with some opt-outs on the one hand and a deepening uh, Eurozone core on the other, uh, uh, there has to be a, a, a rule-based set of relations between these two uh, different uh, different kinds of, of membership, one deeper than the other. Uh, so I think that's that's understood in, in Ireland. Again, the precise uh, uh, the precise rules are you know are it could be contentious and are very delicately you know delicately phrased, particularly if there's not going to be a treaty renegotiation uh, concerning them. Uh, but again, there would be uh, a, a lot of overlap of interests there. Uh, because of uh, common positions and policies on 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 you know, for financial markets, uh, open open markets, and so on. Uh, at the same time, uh, a desire not to, not to concede too much towards the British case. But there's a there's a sense too, isn't there, that the uh, that if the British win concessions on on decision making, for example, in the European Union, and continue on in their membership, their uh, traditionally obstreperous and difficult relationship, their continued membership is going to simply slow down progress in the European Union, and and from a long term perspective might not actually be in the interests of those members who, who, are, who remain. Well, I think that's a very, very good point and a pretty fundamental one. Uh, if you, I mean, one of the people uh, speaking, uh, Anon Menon, who's uh, a professor in London University and runs uh, a, a project on, on the UK in, in a changing Europe, he was speaking last, last week in Dublin. And the point, he, the point he made is that it could be, the outcome could be a surly and reluctant victory of 55 to 45% in favour of staying in. But the, uh, we, in our book, we, 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 we created four scenarios to try and analyse where Britain stands, uh, which range from a fully in position, uh, very unlikely that would involve Britain joining the euro, to a completely out position. But the interesting ones are the half in position and the half out position. Now, this reluctant, surly half out position would create a continuing dynamic over you know, over the next decades uh, of a, a blocking of the further development of the system and indeed uh, an encumbrance uh, on it, an encumbrance on it uh, that would lead to a lot more frustration. Now, in order to avoid that, uh, it seems to me that uh, states have to get pretty hard-nosed about their interest in dealing with this kind of British case and it needs to be got over in the British debate uh, that uh, it's not going to be an easy ride. Dennis, uh, the Irish are going to be campaigning in some ways in, in Britain. And, and I noticed the other day that uh, uh, Willie Walsh warning that we have to be very careful about the tone we adopt in the debate so there's no sense of a us interfering in their internal affairs. Can you tell us what, what the Irish are actually doing there, both in business and, and government? Well, there are various uh, groups, uh, business groups that are trying to get together now to kind of form some kind of uh, little uh, groups that can uh, help with the very with the campaigns and try to organise uh, some kind of communication to the many many uh, Irish people living in Britain who, of course, are entitled to vote in the referendum and to try to influence them to get involved in the campaigns. And then at a, a governmental level, uh, the, in fact, today. 
today, the Irish ambassador is going to be uh, testifying before the House of Lords, the EU committee, to talk about uh, the, uh, the whole issue of Brexit. But I think that the Irish are in a slightly different category to other non-British people when it comes to trying to influence the debate, in that we're not really regarded as properly foreign in the way that many other Europeans are. So I think uh, Willie Walsh is probably right that it is important to get the tone right, and you shouldn't be lecturing people, as we know very well, about what they ought to be doing with their own internal affairs. But at the same time, I think that uh, probably what Irish people say about this might come across uh, a little bit less aggressively than perhaps if uh, Jean-Claude Juncker or various bigwigs from the European Parliament come swanning over and start telling uh, the British people what their best interests are. I think that could certainly get their backs up. But I think I think the Irish uh, will probably uh, will probably handle it uh, reasonably deftly, and I, I can't imagine that there'd be too much swagger about the way in which they approach it. There's been a lot of focus on what would happen if uh, Britain voted to uh, get out of the European Union, but that uh, Scotland and, say, Northern Ireland and Wales uh, voted to stay in, and so they were being uh, bounced out of the European Union against their will. But it's worth thinking about what might happen if the, if the other thing, uh, if it were to go the other way around. So, in other words, if Britain were to vote narrowly to stay in, but that actually England was uh, was opposed to, uh, by a majority to EU membership, and that, I think, could create an even more unstable situation here afterwards. Now, Paul, there is, of course, a particular uh, temptation to get involved in the campaign in the, in the north. Uh, how, how do you see that happening? There's been very little really discussion about about the issue in in the north. Indeed, uh, um, uh, I heard somebody say recently that uh, there was a, a, a meeting on peace and prosperity in the north. A kind of stakeholder meeting uh, very recently and Brexit was only mentioned once by one speaker. Uh, in fact, it's a very significant, I mean, a major, I would say a major shock potentially on their horizon. Now, uh, in the debate, uh, a, a Northern Ireland vote in favour of staying in the EU is a very, would be a very significant political fact from the Irish point of view. Uh, and it's something I think that they should be, you know, Ireland should be seeking to achieve uh, in, this, uh, in this vote. Uh, and uh, there are many fundamental interests uh, in the north. Let me, for example, mention agriculture. Uh, um, uh, cap, cap would be fundamentally changed by a, uh, a Brexit. Uh, do people understand that? The effect, the effect of border controls, etc., etc., etc. And I think we we don't have a particular necessary sensitivity. Uh, in, in arguing the case on an all-Ireland basis, an all-Ireland basis, as the unionists would put it. But uh, I think that, that's something that should be not overlooked. Thank you, Paul and Dennis. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And now to Poland, where the Law and Justice Party has made a remarkable return to power in an election that will also shift the political centre of gravity in Europe. Derek Scally reports. Poland didn't lurch to the right in its weekend election. All that happened was that Polish voters swapped one form of right-wing politics for another. They tired of the liberal conservative civic platform after two terms and opted instead for the national conservative alternative called Law and Justice, known by the acronym PEACE. 
so far so normal. But with 37% of the vote, peace may secure an absolute majority. That would be a first in democratic Polish politics. It wasn't the only historic aspect of the election. The new parliament, the same, will have no parties of the left for the first time since the Second World War. But before speculating over Poland's future, it's worth considering just how far Poland has come since its negotiated transition to democracy. In the first unsteady years after 1989, most Polish prime ministers were lucky to last a year. One managed just 35 days, but Donald Tusk changed all that. The leader of the civic platform and its co-founder, he served a record seven years. He was the first prime minister to be re-elected and he departed for Brussels last year to serve as president of the European Council. In many ways, his appointment was a vote of confidence in his homeland. Poland was a country that had proven itself a reliable and knowledgeable EU partner, particularly in the Ukraine crisis. And so the big question now is whether the recent period of stability in Poland was the exception or the new rule. After 15 prime ministers in 25 years, the 16th is likely to be Beata Szydło. What makes her so interesting is that she is, in Warsaw political circles, a nobody. A 52-year-old miner's daughter, she served as a regional mayor and joined peace only a decade ago. Earlier this year, she was plucked from political obscurity to run for office as a moderate, centrist candidate for the party. In Warsaw, opinion is divided now over whether Mrs. Schutwo will be a real prime minister or merely a political puppet of the peace leader Jarosław Kaczynski. A decade ago, he served as a polarising prime minister. He burned through political goodwill at a startling rate, and in Berlin and elsewhere, many people are worried that Mr Kaczynski will pick up where he left off. But Mr Kaczynski and his supporters are hypersensitive to being patronised. They promise to push Poland's national interests like every other EU member state. On climate policy, that means it will defend Poland's national coal industry the way Germany protects its car companies. On the EU reform agenda, peace is promised to look closely at proposals from the Tories, its allies in the European Parliament. And on foreign and security policy, Kaczynski supporters ask whether his warnings on Russia, that were dubbed hysteria a decade ago, have not come true in Ukraine. Peace politicians also like to point out that it wasn't Poland but Berlin that has taken unilateral stances of late, whether it was on Baltic Sea energy pipelines or, most recently, refugees. And one important point. Unlike a decade ago, Warsaw is far less isolated than it once was. A peace administration will step up cooperation with the immigration-critical neighbours in the Visegrad group, in particular with Hungary. After several hints over the years, Kaczynski critics worry that he will push an urbanisation process in Warsaw. They fear a more authoritarian, populist politics and have revived an old historical rhyme in Warsaw. Poles and Hungarians, two good friends, Fighting and drinking together are their ends. For Worldview, this is Derek Scally.
That's it from Worldview this week. I'm Patrick Smith. My thanks to Dennis Staunton, Paul Gillespie and Derek Scally, and to Sinead O'Shea who produced and Gary White on sound. <laughs>